The Hunter Biden text and the attempted coup in Russia. We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the Right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Noah Rothman, and the Sage of Authenticity Woods, Jim Garrity. You are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Waterstone and the Free the Economy podcast from CEI. More about both of those in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So we had this never mind attempted coup in Russia, Noah, over the weekend, about a 24-hour high-wire act that uh, ended with the uh, forces of the head of this uh, Wagner group heading towards Moscow, turning around about 120 miles away from Moscow, pretty small convoy. It was hard to tell how this uh, attempted coup was actually going to work, which is maybe why he changed his mind, but he gets a deal where he's going to go to Belarus, uh, supposedly, and, and all ch- he's supposed to be there now. All charges are going to be dropped. He might find himself falling out of a window sometime soon. You'd think Putin would have to kill him to try to reestablish his dominance, but there are various interpretations of this event all over the map from this is Putin's way, very clever way of integrating the Wagner group, this mercenary group into the Russian army and getting rid of the head of of the Wagner group, or this is a, uh, a desperate sign of weakness for Putin's regime and he will fall, but not today or tomorrow, sometime in the not too distant future. What do you make of it? There are so many threads to pull on here that I could go on for two and a half hours, and you should probably stop me if I get too in the weeds. What we saw over the weekend, ostensibly triggered by a Ministry of Defense effort to fold in the Wagner Group into the Ministry of Defense, into the Russian Armed Forces proper, um, was a mutiny, a full-armed rebellion, I would argue the most successful since the Kronstadt Rebellion of 1921, as far as armed rebellions inside Russian territory go. And it was spectacularly successful. I don't think we can debate whether the scale of the forces brought to bear are of any relevance here. They captured the 10th largest city in the country without a shot being fired. The people of that city poured out into the streets, thanking, grateful for the Wagner militia, which is a horrendous group of mass murdering thugs, criminals, literally, former convicts, soldiers of fortune, veterans, who are responsible for some of the most brutal fighting in Russia, captured that city and then drove on Moscow. And according to Prigozhin, uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin, the leader of the Wagner Group, um, established cordons and uh, set up artillery that was trained on Moscow proper and got cold feet. Now, Russia treated this very seriously. The second this happened, they marshaled members of the armed services who continue to have a good relationship with the Wagner Group. Many of those relationships are strained by Prigozhin's uh, agitation against some uh, high-ranking officials in the brass. But they were tearing up roads. They were dismantling bridges. They were doing whatever they can to impede the progress of this column and failed. And demonstrated the hollowness of the Russian state uh, in both political terms and military terms in ways that can't be undone. We can't unsee what we just saw. Now, the deal, as we understand it, to neutralize this threat gives Prigozhin a fiefdom in Belarus, where he gets to keep his most mutinous members of his army 
and perhaps, presumably, the activities in North Africa and the Middle East that are um, very lucrative, where they rape and pillage the local area and the, and the people and assume the wealth of that those territories for themselves. But the enforcement of this provision seems like it's just sort of left to interpretation. I don't think we've seen evidence that the Wagner militia will disarm itself, that most of its members will fold into the military. A lot of the members of the Wagner militia are very frustrated with Prigozhin for taking them to the brink and then just suddenly backing off. But ever, the motives for this thing don't seem very high-minded. It seems like Prigozhin, Prigozhin's um, personal finances and his army's finances were threatened, and he was backed into a corner and thought he was going to be uh, uh, disabused so it's of like power. A- it's kind of classic Julius Caesar scenario. It's, and it's then not, not Vladimir a new Putin, thing. Yeah, and then Vladimir Putin was backed into a corner and feared for the stability of his regime, and everybody sort of caved at the last minute. But, but yeah, but, nothing but, has been resolved. This is a very malignant force and a threat to Putin's regime, and it has revealed the degree of its vulnerability in ways that even the Russian press is using the word vulnerability is, is expressing now in ways that we don't, we mm-hmm. haven't seen since the beginning of this quote unquote special military so, operation. So no, is, is there anything to be said for the, the case or the idea, or the theory, I guess I should say that why, you know, destroy your headquarters and blow up these guys and uh, leave them a, a steaming wreck on the highway on the way to Moscow, if there's some chance they can actually just get them to, to stand down, and that's a, a better outcome. So the fact that they weren't smashed instantly is not necessarily a sign of the hollowness of the Russian state. Well, they did get them to stand down. We don't exactly know how. There are conflicting reports, both this deal that was worked out and whether they had members of the family under threat that got them to off, you know back off from the brink. We don't really know the contours of whatever it was that led them to back down, but the, the threat here was that Moscow would have to make good on its on its as you say, and they just don't have the forces to do it. The Wagner Group destroyed, a, a, according to their own assertions and Ukrainian assertions. We don't really have Russian Ministry of Defense numbers. They destroyed four helicopters. No, I think I'm sorry, six helicopters and one fixed wing aircraft. Killed at least thirteen Russian servicemen. There are only conscripts and national regard national guards left in Russia. All the military is fighting in Ukraine, so they killed a lot of people and got away with it. That's not something the military is going to be especially forgiving of in the long term. And it demonstrates that it can be done. Wagner is not the only group here that has the command of a private army. The predicate has been established here. The precedent is established that if you want to affect your will and strong arm Putin, all you got to do is get 30,000 soldiers and a convoy together, some heavy weapons, and have the will to use them. That's a dangerous predicament. So, Jim, it, it seemed initially that, holy cow, maybe there's going to be an actual civil war in Russia. You know, they'll have to call more f- forces uh, off the front line to go to Rostov and, and fight it out uh, amongst themselves. And this will create, you know, big openings in, in the lines potentially. And th- we could see the Ukrainian counteroffensive sweeping to successes that we have not seen yet. But um, it certainly could be a blow to morale. On the other hand, you know, uh, how much are frontline Russian troops going to know about this event? How much are they going to hear the the truth of it? And Putin, you would think now is going to be, he was already very motivated, is going to be even more motivated to come, come up with some sort of something he can call victory out of Ukraine. This was the Emily Latella coup in Russia. Uh, you get really fired up and then after, oh, never mind. 
um, which is, you know, I don't think from for U.S. interests, um, maybe in a strange way, a failed coup or a abruptly canceled coup, maybe that's one of the best outcomes for us uh, because Putin is weakened. Pigozin certainly uh, looks weakened. I'm sure everyone loves the idea of exile in Belarus. It's lovely this time of year. Um, <laughs> but both, uh, you know, uh, you know, the... Uh, the, the uh, Wagner group now looks like this um, traitorous group that the rest of the Russian army will hate, that's supposed to be integrated into this army. It's easy, very easy to envision all kinds of friction there. The Russian army just recognized that at any given moment, the Wagner group may turn on them and kill their own guys. And in the meantime, Ukraine is launching its offensive and, you know, having some success, not, you know, it's, it's early and all that. Um, Years and years and years ago, back when the U.S. use of Blackwater military contractors was a big issue and uh, in the eyes of many folks on the left, this, you know, terrible menace and a sign of how we were becoming a, you know, ruthless mercenary empire around the world, etc. I remember speaking to someone who works in the national security community and they envisioned that we would see other countries creating their own separate private armies uh, and they envisioned something with, with, with this person called was Redwater, right? The Russian version of Blackwater was going to come down the pike. And for a long time, Wagner has been that. It's basically this, merc- you know, when Russia doesn't want to leave fingerprints, they send them into uh, Syria or parts of Africa and say, hey, you know, let them do whatever they need to do, kill whoever they need to kill. It's, oh, it wasn't us. It's that private army over there. Don't, don't blame it us. That wasn't state policy. It's these, ah, you know, mercenaries. What are you going to do? Um, and the problem is by doing that, you create this separate group of guys with lots of weapons. Uh, and that's what you need for a coup. And I think it's kind of ironic that the, since the beginning of the Ukrainian war, um, we've had in the invasion, we've had this idea like, God, how are they ever going to get Putin out of power? Um, how does this guy ever get removed? Is, is some, one of his bodyguards going to suddenly decide they've had enough? And in the meantime, there's this giant group of guys with guns who are not happy with the Russian defense ministry and what they're being asked to do in Ukraine. So in a very strange way, I don't want to say it was preordained, but it was um, the, the, the group that was most in a position to be threatening to Putin was right under his nose. And the other thing that's fascinating is the degree to which, you know, Putin, former F- former KGB colonel, you know, FSB, Russian uh, domestic state security and intelligence has eyes and ears everywhere, allegedly. And yet Putin appears to have been largely blindsided by this when the U.S. knew about this and allegedly Ukrainians. If they didn't know the details, they knew something was up and they knew that something was coming down the pike. Um, So all in all, and here's the thing, as much as we may hate Putin, for a bunch of reasons I've written about in a couple of uh, uh, columns, like the, the odds of the next guy being that much better than Putin are not great. Uh, this is kind of, this kind of paranoia, this kind of brutality, this kind of uh, reflexive hostility to the West is kind of ingrained in in Russian mm-hmm. leaders. It's partially a, fa- a factor of geography. It's partially a factor of history. They're always worried about some invader from the West coming, another Napoleon, another Hitler. Um, and so I think that the you know the next guy isn't necessarily going to be any better. Um, so maybe a weakened Putin is actually a better outcome for us than an actual, you know, tumult and civil war and stuff like that. Although I would say, based on what I, you know, the research I did yesterday morning, um, we probably don't have to worry about the loss of a Russian nuclear weapon and all the chaos, but emphasize in an underline in red, probably. So, Charlie, I think that point about the political culture of Russia and how ingrained it is, is, is really an important one, because as the, the 
said to Noah mentioning Caesar, this isn't a new phenomenon that people go to war, generals to make a lot of money, and then if things are going wrong for them back in the capital, you know, they're going to be prosecuted or um, exiled or whatever it is, they, they make the decision whether to march on the capital or not. You can come up with dozens and dozens and dozens of examples of this. The thing is, in the modern West, that we, we haven't experienced this in like 200 or 300 years, like... Um, uh, armed rebellions or, or armed uh, attempted military coups of this sort because we figured out a way to have uh, accountable government, to have transparency, to have civilian control of the military. And these things just don't exist in, in Russia, um, never have and perhaps never will. Yes, this is not my area as a rule, but the dynamic that you just described very much is... And when thinking about Russia, I'm always reminded of Calvin Coolidge's July 4th address in which he essentially says, look, there are two systems. There is a system of the American founding with its roots in Britain. And there is everything else. And that everything else can take different forms. It can involve a czar or an absolute monarchy. It can involve a dictator. It can involve a communist politburo. But irrespective of the detail, it is opposed to what we have in the West. And I think it was you, Rich, who pointed this out at National Review in the last couple of days. Mm -hmm. Russia's never got to the Calvin Coolidge standard. It's had all sorts of different systems and setups and i know i know that there are people out there who think that their particular brand of authoritarianism is different but it's not you either believe in a small r republican constitutional order a few variations you can have it under a monarchy as in britain canada australia or you don't and the russians don't they don't have that habit. The other thought I suppose that I would share is that though I knew very little about the details or who to trust or how to interpret it, I did on Saturday fall back on my reflexive fear of and distaste towards coups and civil wars. I think some people got rather excited by this news and I understand the feeling given that Putin is a butcher, but coups don't really tend to work out. Revolutions are usually bad news. Civil wars are horrible. We have a strange perspective in the United States and to a lesser extent in Britain when it comes to revolutions and civil wars and even coups because there and here they have worked out relatively well. The upshot of the English Civil War in the long run was a weakening of absolute monarchy. We had the Glorious Revolution, which was a peaceful-ish coup that laid the foundation <laughs> for the system that inspired the American founding fathers. The American Revolution was worthwhile. It was fought for great and salutary ends. And the American Civil War, although extraordinarily bloody and harrowing ended slavery but that's not the normal pattern 
Mm-hmm. Glorious and, Revolution, I've never thought of it this way, but now that you mention it, it, mu- it must be the best coup of all time. Yeah, it was the greatest coup of all time. <laughs> the that, that could be a title of a, of a book, Charlie, you can write about. Absolutely. Write about it, yeah. And I'm, I'm sure the people who haven't read the book would have just read the title wouldn't throw <laughs> that one at me for the rest of my life. Um, the likeliest outcome had the group got to Moscow on Saturday and deposed Putin would have been widespread bloodshed and the replacement of one tyrant with another. And so for the few hours in which this was the main news, uh, I watched in, in horror and cognizant of the fact that Russia really has, for almost its entire history, had a, a tragic uh, fate. So now let, let's uh, focus on that a little bit more. Rooting interest. Did you have any rooting interest in this event, one way or the other? Um, so I shared Charlie's trepidation here uh, about the what comes next aspect of it. And yeah, really only only the Russian leaders who don't deserve it find themselves in the crosshairs of an assassin's bullet. Uh, so yes, I actually didn't have very many high hopes for the outcome of this sort of thing. I did like to see chaos behind the Russian lines because that yeah. advances Ukrainian objectives on the battlefield. But I do want to suggest that we redefine our terms a little bit and, and dwell a little bit on something you said, uh, Rich, earlier about the nature of this being a coup and what we think of when we think of coups. The only reason why there was a deal that was possible here is because it was the stated intention of the of Prigozhin and his military that Putin wasn't a target. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. left them. That left them the out. Right. It was always right. that oh, we just wanted to see. Excuse change. us, sir. We're just marching on your capital. Ne- ne- never mind us. You're a great, great leader. Do we have some personnel changes we'd like to make. Yeah, I, I hope yeah. when the coup at National View happens, way to this... re- register your dissent. Yeah, when, I hope it's not when the push. National View coup happens, I hope it, it shows as much deference <laughs> to me. But it's not. It's not really a putsch. It's not a coup when we think of a coup like a Seven mm-hmm. Days in May scenario where the power right. centers are seized and everybody's on the same page and we have a plan moving forward. It was very pre-modern in the sense that this is warlordism. We're talking about a man with his distinct power center mm-hmm. who marched on the capital in order to secure an advantage for his private military. And mm-hmm. he was bought off in a very futile way. Mm-hmm. They offered him yep. a, 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 an, an unoccupied fortress in the hinterland yep. Yep. where he can that can be his fiefdom moving forward. So this pre-modern conception of how Russian so- the social contract is and how Russian society is organized is really an operative theory that'll help you understand this more than thinking about this in Western terms in a 19th century, 20th century sort of conception of where the power centers are. This is a, a semi-medieval society still, and it is organized in that way. And it, that was as apparent as it's ever been over the weekend. Yeah, there's also some <clears throat> echoes, obviously, of Latin American coups where you have the, the colonel. For some reason, it's never a general in Latin America's voice, the colonel, um, who, who has, has his force and, and makes a move on the capital. Although there you know, have been as many of those lately. So it's just astonishing that you know, it's happening in a, a country with pretensions to uh, global leadership that happens to have 6,000 nuclear warheads. Jim Garrity, exit question to you. This attempted coup makes you more optimistic about the war in Ukraine, um, more pessimistic, or it doesn't change your view one way or the other? Slightly more optimistic. Just just because of the sheer 
chaos and disorder can't be good for the Russians. Yeah, the more energy that Russians are spending fighting each other and watching their backs and not trusting each other, et cetera, the more the less focused they are on Ukraine and the more likely it is the Ukrainians will be able to take advantage of that. No. More. Um, not because of necessarily immediate battlefield successes. Wagner had been removed from the front lines or displaced itself from the front lines like two weeks prior to this, um, but because it shows the cracks forming in Russian society around not just the objectives in Ukraine, because most of the objectives they want to see, Wagner wants to see more bloodshed in Ukraine. They want to mm-hmm. see a more robust response, a mobilization of of all the Russian forces and the Russian civilian population. And it seems like the civil, the civilian population in Rostov agrees. So it makes you very concerned about what would, what would follow a Putin regime. But that kind of instability suggests in the very near term that there could be opportunities for Ukrainians to exploit. Try. I agree with Jim and Noah and can't put it any better. Yeah, I'm going to agree, but just to make it clear, I, I, I'm talking just a tick, just a tick more optimistic. With that, let's hear from our first sponsor of this episode, Waterstone. When Patricia tried to donate to a conservative organization through her donor-advised fund, her request was denied. Why? Because they said she was trying to give to a hate group. That's why she switched to Waterstone, a donor-advised fund dedicated to upholding Judeo-Christian values. Waterstone is unique in the world of donor-advised funds. It accepts gifts of cash as well as real estate, business interest, oil, and more. They can help you receive an immediate tax deduction and make a difference for the charity of your choosing. With this charitable pool trust, you can even generate a guaranteed income stream from your charitable giving. Waterstone strictly adheres to a Christian statement of faith, including a pro-life declaration, and does not give to charities that contradict those values. Waterstone is trusted by so many men and women of conviction that they give $10 million per month in charitable grants. They can work with you or your financial advisor to make a giving strategy that fits your needs. Contact Waterstone's Giving Strategies team today for more information by visiting waterstone.org. That's waterstone.org. Please check it out. So Jim Garrity, last week we had House Republicans reveal this testimony from an IRS whistleblower that's just quite extraordinary. And the most explosive element of it was this WhatsApp message from Hunter Biden to this Chinese associate with this Chinese firm he was quote unquote doing business with saying hey my I'm here with my father now to be clear Joe Biden was not in office at the time but uh, still uh, an influential guy who might run for president might even win the presidency again it's hard to imagine but <laughs> it's happened and you got to pay up and if you don't pay up i have a very long memory uh, my father and e- everyone we know you know is is going to notice this and almost immediately afterwards he gets a um, hundred thousand uh, dollars from cefc this chinese concern and then $5 million shortly after that. And then, of course, because it's the Biden family way, they're not selfish people, Jim, to share the wealth. This uh, part of this payout gets transferred to Joe Biden's brother's business, and the beat goes on. I know the what if it was a Republican or what if it was Trump game is tiresome, but I contend if special counsel Robert Mueller, who is investigating Russiagate, had found a message, such a message from Don Jr. to, to, to some Russian entity, it would have been the most explosive thing in his uh, long report that it took, I don't know, a, a year or whatever to compile. But what do you make of it? 
Well, the whistleblower's claims make sense and fit with what we know. The investigation into Hunter Biden began in 2018, right? It's 2023. Five years have gone by. It was a big deal in the 2020 election. We had the confirmation of the investigation into uh, Hunter Biden's taxes shortly after the 2020 election. It's fair to wonder whether that information was kept under wraps because they didn't want it to influence the election. And when Hunter Biden, by his own self-description, talks about doing cocaine every 15 minutes. By the way, he's picked up his father's habit of using the word literally when he (laughs) means figuratively. I don't think that uh, Hunter Biden was literally using cocaine every 15 minutes. Cocaine users are not really known for their punctuality and attention to detail. Um, But, you know, Hunter Biden was coked out of his mind and using drugs habitually. Do you think, and of course, uh, during this time, he's dealing with all kinds of shady foreign businessmen who appear really eager to have, yes, we have the vice president's son as one of our business partners. How likely is it that Hunter Biden was reporting every last penny of income during all of this? Mm-hmm. Seems like a real, while he's coked out of his mind. It's, you know, that seems like the sort of thing that might slip his mind when he's impregnating strippers and doing all the other, uh, uh, you know, scandalous behavior going on. So it began the investigation in 2018. Um, then they keep going into, it goes, accelerates into 2020. And only just this past month have we seen this come to an arrangement. So first of all, this is an exceptionally slow-moving investigation. And several times during it, we've seen unnamed sources, probably FBI agents, uh, telling the institutions like the Washington Post that they see chargeable tax and gun purchase uh, crimes against Hunter Biden. And they were wondering why the investigation was taking so long. And they wondered why they were sending stuff up the ladder and it wasn't seeing any type of reaction. And now this whistleblower comes forward and says, yeah, there's a whole bunch of evidence of stuff of additional crimes, bribery or, you know, influence peddling and things like that, that didn't get prosecuted. And this really is a sweetheart deal designed to get this issue over and done with before the 2024 presidential elections, let Hunter Biden walk away with a fine and probation and suspended sentence. And for um, people to stop, you know, snickering so loudly when Joe Biden runs around the country and says that the real problem is that rich in this country is that rich people aren't paying their fair share of taxes. When his son just admitted he did not pay taxes on millions of income in 2017, 2018. So, Charlie, as we've discussed before, obviously the issue here is not Hunter Biden's prodigious personal problems with dr- drug abuse high on the high on the list. It is th- this business model. And I, I, I doubt Joe Biden was actually sitting next to Hunter when he sent this message, but it just shows this was the key point of leverage. This was the difference maker. It wasn't Hunter Biden's business acumen. It was Hunter Biden's influence and access thanks to his father. And this wasn't like a, a one-off. Again, this isn't some Scam Hunter Biden's uh, using just to buy his um, his 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 next uh, uh, bag of coke and go to the strip club. This this was integrated into the entire family. The the uh, uh, other people in the family were profiting from this. But uh, what do you make of it? Why do you think it's unlikely that Hunter was sitting next to Joe? It just sounds to me like. Balderdash, to use the uh, the word that Joe Biden used so often in that Paul Ryan debate, it sounds like boastfulness. Malarkey, Malarkey, yeah, that's what it was, Malarkey. It sounds to me that way. I, I don't, I don't know, uh, and we'll get to this in a second. But you know, the whistleblower says, well, you know, we could have uh, used like uh, 
checked out the geolocation of, of Hunter and Joe based on various messages and maybe gotten closer to finding out, you know, whether, whether they're together. But my, my point is that whether they were actually together or not is not, it's, it's relevant because if he's right there and knows Hunter sending this message, that just totally blows away, which has already been basically discredited the idea that Joe didn't know about any of this. Yeah. But even if Joe wasn't there, it still shows what the business model was all about. Yeah, you, you think it sounds a little bit like when you get a marketer to call you and they say, I'm sitting with my boss right now and he's giving yeah. me special dispensation to give you. Mm-hmm. I'm not normally allowed to do this, but yeah. I can get to 75% off. Yeah, exactly. Let me let me go, you know, the used car dealership. Let me go talk to my manager. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> I find the mawkish argument that is now being widely advanced that what we really should be focusing on here is how much joe biden loves his son to be revolting Mm -hmm. i don't doubt that it is tragic for joe biden to have watched this happen to hunter and i i grasp as a father the many different emotions that he has to struggle through but you know, Nicholas Kristoff saying what this really shows us is how big a problem addiction is. And Anna Navarro saying this just indicates how great a dad... Je- no, that that's not the key part of this story, as you say. That may all be true, but this exists independently of and despite all of that. I don't think you can avoid saying what if this were a Republican. I think if this were a Republican president, the press would talk about nothing else. I think that the sins of the sun would be cast as a matter of routine as a reflection on the father and all sorts of connections that may or may not exist would be made. And I don't think that the president would be allowed to get away with just saying no, or I don't want to talk about it, or I'm proud of my son. I mean, this is, at the very least, this is evidence, as you say, that the son of the president of the United States, at that point, the vice president, right? Is that the timeline? I don't think it was, it was I think it was 2017. Yeah. Is that well, correct? investigation began. Okay, so right. either the vice president or former vice president, soon to be presidential candidate or president. Is the, I think he was former vice president, but I'm not 100% sure. That he was using his name. And that is a big problem for a return to honor candidate. And I'm going to hold off on any more until we have more information. But you know, this is sufficient. This is sufficient in any universe to ring alarm bells, to warrant an investigation, to force the American media into the sort of digging operation that it's staged with Watergate. So, no, another subplot here is the the investigation. And, of course, the, the whistleblowers say that uh, all sorts of things were, were unusual things were done to protect Joe Biden and to prevent this from being fully and appropriately investigated, perhaps most prominently the U.S. attorney in Delaware, a Trump appointee, 
David Weiss, who's been given responsibility for this, was supposed to basically have free reign. And Merrick Garland testified to the fact that uh, no other U.S. attorneys or in other jurisdictions are going to be able to quash what he's doing. Um, and that uh, apparently, according to the whistleblower, is is not true, and that Weiss wanted to get special counsel status to be able to uh, charge what he wanted to, to charge, where he wanted to charge, if I understand it correctly. And again, according to the whistleblower, we need to hear from everyone else. That didn't happen. And I, I don't quite know why the Justice Department and the Biden administration wouldn't have been amenable to a special counsel given their proximity to the person under investigation here. And this has just created vastly more dangerous headaches for the Biden administration. If we think Kevin McCarthy isn't just spitting in the wind here when he says that, that, quote, this will be a significant part of a larger impeachment inquiry into Merrick Garland's weaponization of the DOJ. Let's think about the implications of that here. I'm with Charlie. I don't think there's enough meat on this here for us to render any definitive conclusions one way or the other. But we don't have to be any more responsible than the politicians who are going to litigate this thing are going to be. And they will not be so responsible. The basic rule here is that the less you have to explain, the better. And the Republican line is infinitely less complex than the Democratic defense. Their line is, the most responsible iteration of it, is that Joe Biden, actively or passively, allowed his son to enrich himself based on his proximity to presidential-level political power. And subsequently, the executive agencies that Joe Biden controlled appear to be protecting his son from the legal consequences of this behavior by delaying or frustrating these investigations into his conduct. That's a pretty compelling narrative. And in order to argue against it, you have to do, as Charlie said, you have to argue about the metaphysical nature of of father-son relationship and uh, the intricacies of the investigation and whether or not Joe Biden was even there. And even by lending any oxygen to these arguments, you give them credibility. We could see hearings and investigations and maybe even this threatened impeachment inquiry of the attorney general, which would consume the country. And if it happened, it would happen in late 2023, early 2024 during a general election cycle. Joe Biden's already weak based on indigenous factors, his own health, his own conduct. An exogenous scandal? How would that not seal the deal? Jim Garrity, X question to you. Rate the Hunter Biden slash Joe Biden scandal from zero to 10. Zero, no big deal. We just have a troubled uh, first son. Uh, and that's that's it pretty much. Nothing to see here. 10 this uh, this is looking like it could be a Watergate level event. Zero to ten. So if it as President Biden insists, he never actually Biden says he never discussed any business with Hunter, which is very very hard to believe. But fine, whatever. Um, if Biden never changed any policy, or there's no way to trace or way to determine that Biden changed never changed any policy. Uh, either as vice president or as president, then you've still got about a six or a seven, right? That this is basically Hunter Biden convincing sleazy businessmen from overseas that he can do favors that he really is in no position to do. If it does come out that some policy was changed either in the Obama years or as Biden being president in order to benefit one of Hunter Biden's clients, or by the way, any one of the purchases of his uh, purchasers of his art 
or any of the Chinese businessmen who gave him that huge multi-carat diamond mm-hmm. and all that, you know, uh, if any of these folks ever, you know, got any policy change, then it's a 10, then it is Watergate, then it is get Biden the heck out of office immediately. So how about if there's not a policy change, but it's established that money was going directly into a, a Joe Biden bank account? Honestly, uh, Rich, I don't see a huge difference between sending, you know, a half million dollars to Joe Biden's account or sending a half million dollars to uh, or sending five million dollars to mm-hmm. uh, Hunter Biden's account with 10 percent for the big the the the, uh, the big guy, so to speak. Uh, I think if, you know, somebody like if you're, you know, if, yeah, yeah. In other words, like, you know, you know, like. Hunter, look, it's not like Joe Biden really needs the money. He's got all his houses in Delhi. He's, he's got a very comfortable life, and he's 80-some years old. Hunter Biden, on the other hand, the moment his father leaves office, what value is he to anybody? Mm-hmm. Charlie Cook, 0 to 10. Well, I would say that I'm at a 7, but I would also point out that at this stage in the proceedings, anything over a 1 should prompt the American press to investigate this furiously. If you go back and you look at Watergate, there were many moments at which it was impossible to link Nixon to what had happened. The break-in was independently reported and was only later definitively correlated with the president. This is enough smoke to be looking for a fire. So although I think it's a seven, that's a broad guess, given what we know, the the potential, as Jim says, for this to get to 10 is clearly there. And if it's a 10, then the president would have to resign. And because of that, it has to be treated seriously. So the, so the 10, are you like, Jim, the 10 is not just money going to, to Biden. You know, the big guy actually being established that he he was taking 10%, but but some sort of policy change. Well, I think that would be the worst possible outcome and would yield unrebuttable calls for resignation, no? Mm-hmm. Would there be any plausible argument at that point against Biden leaving office or being impeached? No, Rothman. Oh, everybody loves him. He's such a great guy. <laughs> no, I'm asking genuinely. I mean, I'm sure there will. If if he changed Paul, if he if if you were bribed, basically. Right. Is there a case for allowing? They'll, they'll come up with one. They'll come up with one. But would you find it plausible? I don't think I would. I'm struggling to think of what the convincing argument could be in that circumstance. For a bribe, there would be, but it would, I, I, it would be a bit. Yeah, attacks on the on the people making the accusation. Right, mega extremists, right, vast right wing conspiracy. Yeah, but but with they, I mean, now we're getting really down the rabbit hole of speculation. That they would try to dump Biden at that point, though, right? He, he, he presumably right. they'd want to nominate someone else, and thereby they would affirm my theory that once you reach that point, and of course we're a million miles from it, and I'm not accusing him of it, but if we were to reach that point, I just don't see how he could continue, whatever form that took. Not mm-hmm. running again, resigning, being impeached. I think it would be game over. Mm-hmm. Noah Rothman, zero to ten. Okay, so the last five minutes of this conversation have established two separate tracks for these numbers here: the merits of the clay of the case and the political case. So the merits of the case of the as you say it, if we can establish definitively that Joe Biden himself financially benefited from these transactions, it's like a nine or a ten. 
<clears throat> but the political case is different. And yes, I have all the power, I have all the faith in the power of negative partisanship for us to retroactively condition the public into believing whatever argument the Democrats come up with to defend this kind of conduct. But right now, Republicans are only talking to themselves. And so they need to break out mm -hmm. into the national conversation, the national press, and get their narrative out there. And they're not even remotely close to that yet. So based on that alone, I'm going to go overall six. Okay. <clears throat> I, I'm going to go with seven. And as a potential, uh, as everyone said, or as, as Charlie and J Jim have <clears throat> argued to, to get to get to 10. With that, let's pause and hear from our second sponsor, the Free the Economy podcast, health, wealth, and happiness, three goals that are essential to our lives, but attaining them is often impeded by heavy-handed government controls. That's why we must free the economy. Free the Economy is a weekly podcast produced by the Competitive Enterprise Institute that documents the opportunities for financial success and self-fulfillment in a world with less government control. How can smart urbanism improve our lives? Where is economic freedom under attack? How can we unleash the potential of small business owners and innovators? Each week, host Richard Morrison offers news you can use and fascinating conversations with experts in their fields to answer these questions and more. I think we can all agree freedom is contagious, so check out Free the Economy wherever you listen to podcasts or visit cei.org slash Free the Economy. Please check it out. So Charlie, We've been waiting with bated breath for some significant Supreme Court decisions, maybe affirmative action, the, the granddaddy of them all. We don't have that as we're recording Tuesday morning here, but we did get a very notable case having to do with reapportionment in North Carolina, where the, um, the, the idea of legislative uh, supremacy was at stake, and this decision came out the way you expected and or hoped? Please explain. Well, this case, Morvi Harper, has been used over and over again by court watchers of the left and center-left as proof that this court is illegitimate and needs to be reined in or packed or altered. The case has become synonymous, in effect, with the attacks that have been leveled at the court. And the proposed outcome that the court would side with what's called the independent state legislature theory, which I'll explain in a moment, didn't happen. Even Clarence Thomas's dissent was largely over mootness. That is to say, that Clarence Thomas wrote pages and pages against the majority opinion on the basis that it shouldn't have been decided at all because the facts changed during litigation. So I never thought that the court was going to side with the independent state legislature theory. The argument that was brought before them was that the federal constitution prevents state courts from determining the constitutionality of state election laws because the federal constitution refers in this part of the document to legislatures and legislatures only. And this always struck me as weak. It's comprehensible on its own terms. It's not immediately obviously wrong, but it didn't make much sense to me in context. 
I mean, for example, the, the federal constitution makes a lot of references to legislatures that have to be read in context. Article 1 says, All legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States, which shall consist of a Senate and House of Representatives. Now, that doesn't mean that the executive isn't required to sign legislation. That doesn't mean the executive doesn't have a veto. You have to keep reading to find out where the powers are allocated. And at least to me, I thought that this reading of that clause was incorrect. And as it turned out, the plaintiffs had to make that concession during oral arguments. They had to accept that legislature in this circumstance was not literal and that it included the executive who got a veto. The second reason I never thought this made a great deal of sense was that whatever powers state legislatures have, they come from state constitutions. The powers of state legislatures, that they don't come from the ether, and they can't be divorced from their source, which is the Constitution. So you do need a judiciary to police the boundaries that are laid out elsewhere in that Constitution. So the court decided that the state courts had a role to play. And... This I anticipated. Uh, They didn't give them a blank check. There's a line in the majority opinion that says that state courts may not transgress the ordinary bounds of judicial review such that they arrogate to themselves the power vested in state legislatures to regulate federal elections. But the key question, can the states set their own rules in their legislatures without judicial oversight? The answer to that. Was no. Now, this obviously mattered a great deal politically, which is separate from the constitutional question, because there is a fear out there, and not entirely unsubstantiated, after what happened in 2020, that Republican states would, if we had another claim of a stolen election as we did in 2020, try to declare someone who did not, in fact, win the winner or that they would gerrymander uh, the elections in a way that was inconsistent with provisions of state law or federal law or what you will. But I think it is worth saying that this outcome did not happen, that the conclusions that were glued to this predicted outcome that the Supreme Court was just a tool of the Republican Party, that it was a tool of right-wing extremism, that it was inextricably linked from movement conservatism, was false. And it showed just how upside down the press's commentary about the court is, how little so many people who analyze this court understand about how its majority thinks, about what originalism is, about where it comes from, And that when the outcome suits the people who make waves in this area, in the press and in politics, they not only fall silent about it, but they drop all of their usual objections. Nobody is going to cast this case as the court giving itself more power, which is actually what happened here, even if it's correct, which I think it is. This is a perfect example of the Supreme Court saying that courts have more power within our system, that courts get to superintend key political 
questions. Now, because I think this was decided broadly correctly, I'm not opposed to that. But I do find it hilarious and sad that this decision is today being cheered by the same people who continue to pretend day in, day out, and especially at the moment because it's the one-year anniversary of Dobbs, that the Dobbs decision, which overturned Roe v. Wade, was some sort of power grab (laughs) when it was, in fact, the opposite. I would counsel anyone listening to this podcast or anyone listening to any podcast that discusses this to go back a year to when cert was granted on this case and just read all of the predictions from that time and all of the hasty conclusions that were drawn at the time cert was granted and remember the people who made those predictions and next time you read a piece by them or some augury by them, bear in mind that they were profoundly wrong and that the case that they have rested in part on top of Moore v. Harper is weak. Noah? I think that was fantastic. There's very little for me to to add to that um, just because it was so comprehensive. (laughs) I'll just briefly suggest, you know, as you say, a lot of the the commentary on this on court, looks at it, as Charlie just said, through the prism of power politics, which is a distorting lens and doesn't allow them to comprehend what it is they're actually seeing. So when they see Dobbs return uh, a legislative issue to legislatures, they see this as just, you know, generally just benefiting Republicans. And when Moore does the opposite and preserves a state constitution's authority, uh, understood to grant state judiciary the power to review laws... They don't quite know what to make of it. They just sort of celebrate it. And they disregard their commentary, as as Charlie has also said, on Bruin, about the nature of the obstacles that state legislatures can put before constitutional rights or the preservation of individual rights in Kennedy v. Bremerton High School. Or this decision, or West Virginia v. uh, the EPA reigning in the executive agency. What the court is doing, broadly, if you look at it from a 30,000-foot perspective, it's not aggregating power just for itself or for the Republican lawmakers with whom the majority is supposedly aligned. It's disaggregating power across the whole Madisonian scheme, which is broadly something I think would, we would benefit from. Um, Stanford University law professor back in November, Mark Limley, told the New York Times that the court was, quote, consolidating its power, systematically undercutting any branch of government, federal or state, that might threaten its power, while at the same time undercutting individual rights. I mean, what a, what projection there is in that statement. It's untethered to anything observable or empirical. It's reflective, I think, more of the psychology to which Professor Limley is aligned. That's what he would like to see done, only on his side. And they just can't evaluate what we're witnessing on terms that neutral obser- observers would share and understand, which is not valuable commentary and suggests a degree of myopia Um, that renders them unreliable narrators. And if we don't have reliable narrators to understand this court, for for the political press which aligns left, then they just simply can't describe the world as it is and are not valuable as uh, as reporting and journalistic outlets. So, Jim, what we're talking about here really, uh, what Charlie and Noah have been discussing, is the the effort to delegitimize the court. And this is the jurisprudential element of that, but it's obviously a much broader effort. And we've, you know, ProPublica has been walking point on the these alleged corruption case against the Supreme Court, but it's all pointed in the same direction. 
Yeah, uh, a controversial or a high-profile decision from the court in this current political environment has a different consequence or potential consequence than it did five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Uh, Just this past Sunday, uh, Sahil Kapoor, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, senior national political reporter on NBC News, uh, puts out this tweet where he points out, the Supreme Court's favorable rating of Americans has fallen to 31%, according to the new NBC News poll. In January 2021, it was 44%. In October 2018, it was 50%. And by the way, if you go to 538, you can find other surveys. Yeah, that John, have, there's no way John Roberts is going to win Iowa with those kind of numbers, Jim. Yeah, you know, the first is there's that. Well, it depends how many other justices get in the race. <laughs> um, <laughs> if they split the field, they yeah, maybe. split the vote. You've seen some of these decisions that get really complicated. But basically, um, you'd like to have the public having, you know, favorable opinions or feeling confident in the decision-making of Supreme Court. You recognize it's never going to be 100%. But a whole bunch of folks on the left have used our, your points, to the, pointing to this, and a lot of, you know, a couple of my colleagues said, ah, you can see the subliminal, it's working theme. I don't want to put words in the mouth of Sahil Kapoor of NBC News. Uh, but there's no doubt there are a lot of figures on the left who look at that trend in the polls and say, yay, right, we, we're winning. We are delegitimizing uh, the Supreme Court. Now, the interesting, a lot of folks on the left use the term illegitimate when they mean I don't like it, mm-hmm. right? The Supreme Court is every bit as legitimate as it was five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. It may not be as popular, but the Supreme Court doesn't run on popularity. The Supreme Court doesn't run on high approval ratings. The Supreme Court can't get voted out of office. The Supreme Court is there, right? The only, the only thing that could really make things break down for the Supreme Court is the day some lawmaker, some governor, some mayor, somebody says, you know what? I know the Supreme Court said this is unconstitutional, but screw them. I don't care. I'm going to keep doing this. And every once in a while, you hear somebody on the left make these arguments. Um, you know, it very So far, it hasn't really gone anywhere, but that, that seed has been planted. That sense of because, you know, how many divisions does the, does the Supreme Court have? Oh, you think this is un- what I'm doing is unconstitutional? Make me stop! I'm going to ignore you, right? This, uh, you know, standing at the schoolhouse doors type mentality. And this, I, I, I'm very curious about how folks on the left, liberals, progressives, think this is going to work out for them in the long run. Because for all generation, probably two generations, Supreme Court was enacting policies pushing Americans to the left in the way it interpreted the constitutions. The day you decide now, the Supreme Court doesn't is not the final word anymore. And we're just going to ignore it when we don't like it. If you don't think Republican governors can make the same move, if you don't think Republican mayors, Republican parts of the country, and arguably Republican presidents, I mean, Trump every five minutes is ready to say, you know, make me, right? He's, He's openly defiant of checks and balances and the Supreme Court and all that kind of stuff. So the idea that liberals think they can tear down the authority of the Supreme Court and its status is, you know, under judicial review as the final arbiter of what is constitutional and what is not constitutional. That if you really want don't if you really want to pass a law and the Supreme Court says it's unconstitutional, you got to change the Constitution. I'll give one molecule of support for Gavin Newsom for actually saying, "Yeah, we should change the Constitution to enact the gun control changes that I want." Never going to happen, but at least he understands. The, at least he remembered that there is a Constitution. At least he's not ignoring it, right? Um, but if the liberals really think, "Oh, we can tear down the authority of the Supreme Court and this won't backfire on us," this key, you know, like the, you at some point somebody has to be able to decide this is what the Constitution means. Of course, I suppose there are some liberals, liberals who like the idea of a world without a constitution entirely. So, Charlie Cook, next question to you. Sorry, it's another unimaginative zero to 10. 
question, rate the success of the conservative legal project over the sweep of the last half century, given where we are now and where we started, from zero to 10? Can I wait to answer this until after we've got oh, the student oh, loan Next decision? week, either, either next week or... Well, or, look, uh, I don't the, want to go back later. onto my hobby horse. He said <laughs> desperate to get back onto his hobby horse. But if the Supreme Court lets Joe Biden's student loan order stands without getting oh, to the yes. merits, yes. it okay. will have created a massive hole in our constitutional order purely by abdication. And I think that will have done more damage than has been done to the U.S. Constitution in years. I'm happy to answer it with that caveat. I think at the moment we're at a seven or an eight. As of where are we? 11, 11.47 a.m. on Tuesday. I think we're at an eight. I think that's for a couple of reasons. The first is that this was genuinely an intellectual revolution that was conceived from the ground up and that has prevailed. People sometimes say, what is conservatism preserved? Well, the U.S. Constitution... <laughs> And the originalist approach, when Antonin Scalia wrote his book, A Matter of Interpretation, in the late 1990s, he clearly thought he was losing. Mm -hmm. That's the tone. Uh, at one point, he looks forward and he imagines this parade of horribles. Well, uh, unfortunately, he died in 2016, but I think now he would recognize that he did not lose. No victories are permanent, of course. And the second reason is that that intellectual victory, which has been almost complete, there is no real opposition anymore to originalism, the alternative is caprice, has been effectively translated into politics. Not just hardball politics, although at times it has taken that, but popular politics. There is a reason that Elena Kagan said, having been nominated by Barack Obama, we're all originalists now. There is a reason that Katanji Brown-Jackson said, I am an originalist at her hearing. Sounded like a real originalist, even if she's not one, and that is that politically originalism has been elevated. So I would give it an eight. I will say, though, that if the court cannot strike down the most egregious attack on Article 1 in recent memory, then... I will have to revise my answer. No problem. So, no, we have a provisional eight on the board. Yeah, I would go further. I, I think it's a nine. And I think that the evidence is all around us that this isn't just an intellectual movement, that it has had profound changes on the social contract that is distinct radically from the one into which we were born. Just based on the social contract during the Warren Court, um, you look at where organized labor now is, and labor rights, and the rights of unions. You look at where gun rights are today, gun ownership rights, the relative restrictions on speech, and the FEC's capacity to um, interdict speech that supposedly violates political conventions that we like, or the regulatory environment broadly, from the EPA on down. I think it's a different country than it was in the middle of the 20th century, and it has a lot not most, maybe, but probably a substantial portion of it is due to an intellectual revolution on the right that focused on the judiciary and successfully uh, overtook competing philosophies and has had profound salutary impacts on how we live life in this country. So nine is where I'm at now, irrespective of the judgment that's coming up. That's an eight and nine, Jim. 
Um, I will note Charlie's caveat. Uh, when you first asked the question between one and 10, I was ready to answer 42. Um, that I think it's a phenomenal success. Uh, a lot of that I think is just my immediate thought about the, uh, ending of Roe v. Wade and how intractable that seemed for much of the past two generations. Um, so if you want to take it down a bit, if you want, you know, when I wrote recently about, uh, the three Trump Supreme Court justices. And I pointed out that, you know, I have a very hard time believing there are too many conservatives out there who see them as disappointments. I got a lot of pushback uh, over Kavanaugh and uh, Gorsuch. I think they're a little more libertarian-minded than some conservatives would like. Their their interpretation of the Constitution is not always going to give Republicans and not always going to give conservatives exactly what they want to hear every time. Uh, But I don't expect that out of my my Supreme Court justices. I'm okay with them coming down with a decision I don't like every now and then. I'm reminded of Ed Koch's statement, if you agree with me on 8 out of 10 issues, vote for me. If you agree with me on 10 out of 10 issues, please see a psychiatrist. Um, You know, so I would put at minimum 8 or 9, and I think you could make an argument that considering where we were over a half century ago to where we are now, uh, I I think it comes very, very close to 10. But they could all blow it with the, the student loan decision, of course. I'll put it at an eight. And with that, let me do a quick plug for NR Plus Digital Subscription Service at nationalview.com. Your way around our meter paywall, your way if you sign up and log in to see 90% fewer ads, especially the most obnoxious and annoying and distracting ads go away like magic. Your way to dig deeper into the NR community. If that floats your boat, you can article, uh, comment on articles and blog posts, I should say. Get invited to exclusive events and calls with our writers, editors, and other conservative figures. Great deal all around. If you haven't already signed up, please consider doing so today, tomorrow, or the day after and joining tens of thousands of your fellow National View readers and listeners as a member of NR Plus. With that, let's hit a few other things before we go. Jim Garrity, you visited a charming, I assume, used bookstore in <laughs> South Carolina. Maybe I shouldn't make assumptions. I was going to say the lighter item would not be. I went to a used bookstore and it was awful. <laughs> uh, no, so uh, I was in Hilton Head last week uh, visiting family and we always take a day trip to Beaufort. Uh, picture small scale Charleston and you have a pretty good idea or, or Savannah and you have an idea of what that uh, you know, port side community is. Uh, it's got a beautiful historic district, and there are two bookstores. One's kind of the modern bookstore, and one is a beautiful old musky uh, used bookstore. And I always, you know, uh, make sure to stop into it every year. And in the section, I, I just came across there was somebody must have donated like a whole collection of Lewis Grizzard books. Uh, he was a newspaper columnist in the South, very in the late, particularly in the 80s and into the 90s. Passed away, I believe, in the mid-90s. Uh, a couple of the Dave Barry books. And it just kind of dawned on me that, like, I'm sure there are, new, first of all, there, the decline of newspapers has had, like, a lot of side effects to, to what formulates our popular culture. And, you know, the decline of comic strips is a very big deal, particularly to me. Um, but I also kind of noticed that, yeah, I mean, I'm sure there are humor columnists that are still out there. But you just don't see that, you know, instantly recognizable Grizzard, obviously, throughout the South during his time, and also just Dave Barry, right? The idea of that humor columnist that you know week in, week out is going to make you laugh. I don't want this to be interpreted as a shot as some good humor columnist out there. No, I think think it's a shot at me, Jim. So you're saying you didn't find my Hunter Biden, Jal Morant uh, satire funny? Oh, oh, that was satire, (laughs) huh? Okay, just making sure. 
Um, yeah, that, that, that in other words, you know, the, the I don't know whether you would call it absurdist or something like that. Um, I, I also, you know, made a comment about the when Mark Russell passed away that you just don't see the gentle kind of humor anymore. Everybody's mm-hmm. kind of got this Lewis Black shock in your face, screaming at you tone, uh, which I often find tiresome, if not repugnant. Um, but I just kind of, I missed it. I was just kind of glad to do it. And I hope used bookstores never go away. And if you're in South Carolina, uh, Beaufort's a lovely little town to visit. So Noah, you went to see your brother's band at the Meadowlands. That's right. So the Meadowlands State Fair, which I'd never been to previously and is gigantic, which pops up in the shadow of MetLife Stadium. Um, went there over the weekend with my, uh, the whole family, my parents, my wife's parents, my kids, and went to see my brother's band play. Now, it's not a garage band. Sounds like it's just, you know, they're just, you know, noodling on in their spare time. Um, they had not played live since 2014, but they had played live for the first time here. My brother's in the music business, so this is just sort of something that he, is part of his industry. And they were really awesome. good. And it's a professional band. If you want to what, check what them out, of, they're called what Canvas. Kind of music? What kind of music? Uh, it's rock. They're trying to bring mm-hmm. rock back. Uh, and it's it's... I mean, it's kind of hard to describe. It's kind of like a Morrissey uh, mixed with uh, My Chemical Romance. I mean, they've got a mm-hmm. lot of influences in there, but it's um, it's they they jam out, man, and it was very cool to see. And I'm uh, very proud of my brother's work, and you should check him out too. Awesome. So, Charlie, I assume as a Yankees fan, because you have some interest in watching baseball teams that can score runs, you've been watching the College World Series. Yes. Well, I was watching it largely because it was the Florida Gators. Against, oh, yeah. Sorry about that. Yeah, against LSU. So I'd never watched college baseball before. A friend of mine texted me and said, are you going to watch the Gators game? This was on Friday. Uh, no, Saturday. Sorry. And I did. And they lost by one run. And then the following night, they won by, what was it, 24 to 4? 22 runs, yeah. So I came in to last night's game, which was the last of the World Series, feeling relatively confident, and no. It yeah. went sideways pretty quickly. 18-4 to four was at the final, yeah. LSU. Yeah. yeah. This, this prompted the question in the Lowry household, what, what was what was the most runs ever scored by one team in a major league game, which I'm not mistaken was the Rangers versus the Orioles, 30-3 Ranger victory, and they're losing 3 to nothing after 3. But I will say... That despite the loss, which I'm getting used to at the moment with my teams, the standard is really high. It was exciting. There was a lot of scoring. I got to see some of the prospects who are coming into Major League Baseball. I mean, three of the top five ranked prospects in college baseball played in that game. So I am a a fan irrespective of my Florida fandom, I am a fan of of college baseball now, and I hope to watch more. All right. Well, speaking of watching things, I went to see, actually with some NR colleagues, including the great Armand White, Asteroid City, the latest Wes Anderson movie, which I have to say is not great, but I'm such a Wes Anderson fan. It's just uh, the charm of it for, for me overcame all the flaws, just um, so many funny um, moments and still has me thinking and trying to to figure out a few things, which is, I think, all you can ask 
from a movie, but if it's not like a, a blockbuster that's going to knock you out of your seat with that, it's time for our editor's picks. Jim Garrity, what's your pick? Well, a lot of good options this week. I think I just really enjoyed Jeff Blahar's Nancy Pelosi's sudden conversion experience. It's not the biggest news of the week, but out of the blue, in an interview with that hard-hitting questioner, Jen Psaki, uh, Nancy Pelosi talked about how she calls for term limits for Supreme Court justices. Now, Jeff points out that there's a pretty glaring, you know, constitutional objection here. You'd have to change the Constitution. I mentioned this in the context of... uh, uh, our discussion of judges earlier in this podcast, um, it you know would be ext- you know, require an enormous effort. But also the irony of this coming from Nancy Pelosi, took her house seat during the Reagan years, spent 36 years accumulating power, and now she's running around saying, "Ah, isn't it terrible that these Supreme Court justices get to have so much power in Washington for such a long time?" Of course, it's hip- you know epically hypocritical, um, and he just kind of points out this the, how Pelosi is just the worst person to be running around criticizing anybody else for ethics standards, uh, considering her time in the House and all that stuff. So good job, Jeff. Everybody should check it out. Noah Rothman, what's your pick? I'm going to go back in the in the Wayback Machine. I don't know if this is a violation of the rules of the editor's picks here, but I'm going to – I knew that more v. Harper came down the right way because I read Bobby Miller, who wrote in November 22, 20, 20, November 22, 2022, quote, originalists should reject the independent state legislature theory. And he writes very compellingly that a strict textualist interpretation of statute and constitution here might lend some credence to this particular theory, but it is a violation of originalist principles in ways that he outlines very capably. I recommend that piece, especially today, since it's so relevant. Charlie, what's your pick? I'm going to take Jim Garrity's Barack Obama gets populism all wrong. I saw Barack Obama try to explain populism, and I thought... You are so far off the mark that I don't even know how you got there. And Jim has written this up, not just the obvious amusing element, which is that Barack Obama is very, very rich. And as Jim points out, apparently has not reached his own at a certain point. You've made enough money. But that his diagnosis of why it is that especially people on the right seem angry with everyone is just off it's self-serving it's what he wishes were true but is in fact not so i'm going to pick once again a webathon pitch this one from charlie but actually i'm i'm happy to pick actually everything that's been written to advance this little webathon we have going the theme of which is pushing back against the trans insanity which we do a lot of at national review most notably by uh, our reporter, Carolyn Downey, and our great colleague, Maddie Kearns, who are absolutely fearless on this topic, have advanced the ball significantly in a number of ways, and whose work deserves your support. So if you want to pitch in, we'd appreciate it very much. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast and a rebroadcast, retransmission, or countless game without the express written permission of National Review Magazine is strictly prohibited this podcast has been produced by the incomparable sarah shitty who makes us sound better than we deserve thanks to charlie thanks to jim thanks to noah thanks to waterstone and the free the economy podcast and thanks especially to all of you for listening we're the editors we'll see you next time